0: Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, November 20th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fishing across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska.
1: And I'm Guy Eero. We're back again at Pyramid Lake, and this week we're talking about the Lahontan Cutthroat Trout.
0: And we'd like to extend a warm welcome to our two guests. Autumn Harry is an Indigenous fly fishing guide with Kuyui Pa Guides, and Roger is a fish biologist with our Lahontan National Fish Hatchery Complex. We're looking forward to learning
2: from both of you. Hau mu everybody. No Autumn Harry Minani nani no Kuyui Pa no Kuyui Takara a guide Takara no everyone. My name is Autumn Harry. I am a Pyramid Lake Tribal member here in Northern Nevada and I'm a graduate student currently at the University of Nevada, Reno in the geography program, and I am the first Paiute woman fly fishing guide within my homelands of Pyramid Lake. And I really like to focus on education. As an indigenous woman, I think it's really important to be able to educate people and provide information about these places that people are recreating in. And Pyramid Lake is such a huge fishing destination because of the Lahan cutthroat trout, which we're going to be talking a lot about today. But because of that, you know, I think it's really important for visitors to understand, yeah, the places that they're visiting. And here at Pyramid Lake, we call the lake Kuyuipa, which refers back to the Kuiwi fish, which I think Mm -hmm. you're also going to be covering in another episode. The Kuiwi are such an important fish to our people. We refer to ourselves as Kuiwi tikata, which means the Kuiwi Eaters, but we're also known as Numa, which means Northern Paiute. And so here at Pyramid Lake, at Kuiwi this is Numa territory, specifically the band of Kuiwi Takata, the Kuiwi Eaters. And yeah, I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, the land, the water, and that history before people travel here. We refer to the Lahatanka Throat Trout as a guy in our language. And it's just like, you know, Hey, there's a guy, which is one of the (laughs) hosts. And uh, so it's really easy to say, yeah, uh, just a guy.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And I'd love if both of you could help us picture in our minds what it would be like to have one of these fish in hand, like what it would feel like, how big is it, and kind of what stands out most about its appearance.
2: For me, you know, they're just so beautiful. All of these trout, no matter what size, they are beautiful and they're special. And I think there's always so much emphasis on like the larger fish, which of course those need to be celebrated. But I think the smaller fish need to be celebrated as well because there's so much work that has gone into the protection and the recovery of the Lahan cutthroat trout. And I think they're just so special. And when you hold them, I know for me, like I think about that history, you know, Mm -hmm. and without the work of my people and the tribe and you know, partners like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we wouldn't even be able to hold those fish. All of them are beautiful.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Roger, how about you?
3: Yeah, I can definitely echo what, what Autumn is saying. You know, some of the most memorable trout I've held are actually some of the smallest ones uh, for cut their trout. I've been able to visit Pilot Peak. Those fish are in a tiny creek. You know, you could mm-hmm. step across it. And those fish are just absolutely beautiful. You know, they have Beautiful purple par marks, black spots across a pinkish lateral line. The flanks kind of go gold to white as you go towards mm. the belly and then kind of gold to olive as you go towards the dorsal fin. It's just really pretty fish. I'm holding each one's a treasure.
0: Awesome. Thank you.
3: The larger ones are also just amazing, of course. And, you know, they range anywhere from silvery for the females, especially to, you know, kind of bright red on the sides. And you know, even the, f- the females still kind of have like hints of purple in them. So just really pretty fish.
0: How big are those larger ones that like kind of the upper size?
3: Yeah, that's the thing. We're just finding out what the potential <laughs> is as we as we move, move forward here. But there are anecdotal accounts of, of fish getting over 60 pounds. The record was oh. 41 pounds uh, caught by Johnny Skimmerhorn in 1925. So these are huge fish or they have the potential to get huge depending on where they're at. And, you know, what look, what strain we're talking about you know, some of the Eastern fish, a 16-inch Lahontan cutthroat trout might be a trophy. That's not even the minimum size for keeping in Pyramid Lake. So really depends where you're at on how big they can get.
1: So real quick, I'd like to talk about the current geography. Great, because we got a geography student here with (laughs) us, as well as the kind of geologic history of where the Lahontan cutthroat trout exists. So where is Pyramid Lake and what other lakes is it currently found in? And what was it like back in the day that allowed this fish to develop into this really large predator?
2: Yeah, so we are situated 35 miles northeast of Reno, Nevada, and we're part of the Truckee River watershed. A lot of your listeners are aware of Lake Tahoe, have heard of the you know Sierra Nevada mountain range, and Lake Tahoe flows northward into the Truckee River, which flows to the cities of Reno and Sparks, and then that then flows to Pyramid Lake and. We are a terminal lake here, meaning that there is no other outlet. Pyramid Lake was actually part of ancient Lake Lahottan.
3: Yep. The Pleistocene area, which was about 10,000 years ago, it was a, a much wetter climate. And mm-hmm. there were huge lakes, including Bonneville Lake and Lake Lahontan, which Lahon cut their track, get their name. But these huge interconnected water bodies and systems that used to exist a long time ago. And I think it's really interesting when you go out to Pyramid Lake, you can still see evidence of that old shoreline from 10,000 years ago up on no, the that that hillsides, cool. if you know what to look for. So, yeah, cool. we're living in the geology, which is pretty cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's very evident when you're looking at the mountains, and um, you can see the old lake level lines as well when you're out fishing or, you know, sitting on the beach at the lake. Uh, what's really unique about the lake is that the entire lake is within the boundaries of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Reservation. And that's actually very rare when you look at other tribes across the United States. And I think what's really, you know, special about ancient Lake Lahaten, and there are uh, different strains of Lahatan cutthroat trout that are now in like Washington, you know, in California and different places, but this is where they originate from. Like this area here in this ancient Lake Lahatan like this is where they're from.
3: They were, you know, kind of known for having a lake life history strategy. So they would live in these large lakes and then go up the tributaries to spawn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the lake dried up, it left these remnant populations kind of scattered across eastern Nevada and some of the different mountain ranges, Pyramid Lake, Walker Lake, those large lakes remained and these fish still were getting large in those lakes. Unfortunately, even in my time, since I've been here, I've seen the fishery disappear at Walker Lake. Walker Lake isn't as deep as pyramid. It only gets about 70 feet deep at its current elevation. I think actually less now. And the water became too warm and too salty for cutthroat trout. So when I first showed up here in 2008, you could catch a dozen fish in an hour when you're fishing out there. And now they're all gone.
0: What's the cause behind that?
3: Climate change is certainly an issue, but also just water diversions. That's the main issue. More water was diverted from Walker Lake than was necessary to maintain its elevation. So the lake kept declining over time. And eventually there was a, a temperature and oxygen squeeze that squeezed out the cutthroat trout.
1: Oh, man. Are there any left in Walker?
3: Yeah, no longer any left in Walker. They were wiped out from Pyramid, too.
1: wiped out from Pyramid. We got them back. Can one of you tell us a little bit about this really interesting story of how we got the original strain from Pyramid Lake back in there? And is there any similar hope for that happening at say Walker Lake?
3: Yeah, I can speak about the the Pilot Peak strain. They have a a really interesting history and it's a really great conservation story. So they were wiped out entirely. The original Tahoe Truckee Pyramid Lake strain, you know, this population was interconnected and fish moved From Tahoe to Pyramid back and forth and they were linked and they had fish that lived their whole lives in the river most likely when conditions were good and then they would also you know go out to the lake and grow larger so it was kind of a way of separating the fish from each other so they didn't have to compete so the juveniles would typically rear in the river system and then the large adults would live in the lake and then go up the rivers to spawn with the construction of Derby Dam in 1905 it severed that connection and the fish are no longer able to access their really important spawning habitat up mm-hmm. in the upper watershed, where the water temperatures were colder and more suitable. With the uh, the decline in the amount of water going to Pyramid Lake, and you know, cutting off habitat, the fishery slowly declined. And by the 1940s, there were no longer cutthroat trout in Pyramid Lake at all. Oh man! And they were thought to be gone forever. Fast forward uh into the 1970s and a fish biologist was out surveying some creeks out on the, the side of pilot peak and came across and cut their trout that didn't look like bonnevilles turns out after consulting with a, a prominent fish biologist at the time dr robert benke uh, that these fish um, appeared to be the original pyramid lake strain of Lahontan cutthroat cut trout fast forward again into the 1990s some genetics research was done that confirmed their origin they were able to compare these fish to museum specimens that had been preserved in formaldehyde. And they were able to extract DNA from those fish and compare it to this population that was found way out of basin, you know, 400 miles away from Pyramid Lake. And that strain of fish now referred to often as the Pilot Peak Strain is what we're working to reintroduce kind of range-wide across the Tahoe, Truckee, and Pyramid watershed. And we produce about 500,000 of them at our hatchery down in Gardnerville at Lahan National Fish Hatchery. Those fish have been stocked in Pyramid Lake since 2006. And we take special care to ensure we're capturing the genetic diversity of these fish. We want to make sure we're not, you know, spawning related fish with one another and, you know, just capturing as much of that genetic legacy as we can. So we have a very careful broodstock program where we have a spawning matrix and we consult with geneticists to make sure we're not losing any of that genetic diversity.
2: Derby Dam began operation around 1907. And I think what's really important to note about that is that the purpose of Derby Dam was to divert water away from the Truckee River system, which meant the water that was meant for Pyramid Lake was being diverted into the Fallon area, which is a very arid basin. It was for the purpose of growth within the desert. And when they did that, we have a sister lake, uh, which is just west of Pyramid Lake. Called Winnemucca Lake. And that was also a really important lake for our people and um, was a very important lake for like migratory waterfowl and also had kweewee and and cutthroat trout, but it was much more um, shallow compared to Pyramid Lake. Because of this water diversion, Pyramid Lake dropped a total of 80 feet. Oh my goodness. And when you see the lake itself, that's a lot of water that was being stolen. And Because of that, when Pyramid Lake was at a certain elevation, it would feed into Winnemucca Lake. And that's Mm. how Winnemucca Lake would receive its water. So once Pyramid Lake fell below that threshold, Winnemucca Lake could no longer receive water and therefore it was drained. And one of my good friends, Jolie Varela, actually reminds me to be really careful of my language. We don't like to refer to it as like a dried lake bed because it didn't just dry up, right? It wasn't just like a naturally occurring event. It was drained. Water was being stolen, and I think when we kind of zoom out of our map here and we think about, again, ancient Lake Lahotan and, you know, when you look up north from Pyramid Lake and you see Summit Lake, like they still had Lahontan cutthroat trout. And, you know, during my time at the fisheries, I learned to refer to this as like a local extinction event because there was a local extinction here at Pyramid Lake, but these other basins like Summit Lake, Walker Lake still had Lahontan cutthroat trout during this time. And the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe partnered with the Summit Lake Paiute tribe, who at the time in the 1970s was also working on developing their fisheries program. And the Pyramid Lake Tribe, yeah, developed their fisheries program in the 1970s as well. And the two tribes partnered together and we were able to take fish from Summit Lake and plant them into Pyramid Lake. And they also started to to grow larger. So that's how you have the two strains. You have the Summit Lake strain, and then you have the Pilot Peak strain. Roger was speaking about the colors a little bit earlier. And for me, sometimes it's still hard to tell the difference between the two, but I feel like the Summit Lake strain have a like more of a reddish brownish hue to them.
3: After after a little bit of time, you can kind of <laughs> notice some differences, but both fish are beautiful. I would add, uh, you know, what happened to the Pyramid Lake fishery was just devastating. You know, it was so, so important for the tribe and It was such an amazing fishery. People traveled from all over the world to Fish Pyramid Lake before it was wiped out. So what the tribe was able to do with reestablishing a fishery uh, in the 1970s was was pretty impressive, especially because some other agencies had been involved and tried to, you know, stock other fish that just didn't work. And the tribe was able to make it work with the cutthroat trout, the right species. That's very remarkable. The fishery nowadays, I mean, it's just it's getting the attention that it deserves. It's absolutely amazing out there.
0: Adam, I know you mentioned uh, education is one of your goals, and I know you're the first indigenous fly fisher woman in your area, right, who's guiding. And I'm just kind of curious if you could talk to us about those two things and how you're connecting people with these fish through through fly fishing.
2: Yeah, so I've been fly fishing since 2018 compared to some people. that's fairly recent, but I've been fishing here my entire life, and I grew up here ever since I was about six years old, my dad and my mom, you know, took me fishing when I was really small. And I just grew this love for this fish. And my late father, Norman Harry, was actually one of the tribal leaders who was involved in the water rights negotiations. The tribe has full management of the lake. And we have our different partners, but, you know, the tribe has our own water quality program, our own water quality standards. We have our work that we're doing and we're like the primary managers of the lake itself and which is why we developed the Pyramid Lake Fisheries and because of this history with Derby Dam our people knew that we wouldn't be able to have a successful recovery of the the trout and the without regaining our water right and so there's been a lot of work with water rights negotiations and you know Suing the federal government and making sure that upstream users, because you have Lake Tahoe, you have the cities of Renon Sparks, you have Washoe County, Story County, there's so many different stakeholders that are involved. And everyone who lives upstream of Pyramid Lake is having an impact on us downstream. And so I think that's really important to note as well. And and when I'm I'm guiding people, you know, I really want people to understand that history. Within the last three years, you know, it's like the first time we've actually had tribal member guides. So I'm not the only one. I'm the only woman, but there are two other tribal members who are fly fishing guides as well, which I think is amazing. But it took almost 20 years for that to finally happen. And so since 2003, there's only been non tribal, non native guides. They're white male guides. They're not from here. And I think that's, you know, something that's very significant when we have, you know, again, going back to this work that we're talking about that the tribe has done. Like, I just noticed this trend of of people from all over the world traveling to our homelands here, hiring non-native guides. They get to catch fish, you know, take their picture and then they leave. But I just saw it as a, a huge missed opportunity. I felt like a lot of people were coming here and not really learning about our people or the history or the work you know that is being done to care for the fish and i feel like when people are able to learn more about that they have an even bigger appreciation for those trout when they are able to connect with them in that way so i like to say that when people book with me they're getting mandatory education i'm wanting to kind of shift fly fishing in that way and making it as educational as possible that's awesome
1: so the lake falls completely within the Paiute Tribe's reservation. Do you need special permission from the tribes in particular to be able to fish there? And if so, was it just that you didn't have people from the tribe who were interested in guiding fly fishing? And it was all people from outside who were getting those licenses? Or was it just unregulated?
2: I really like to talk about the accessibility with fly fishing. And to me, it is not an accessible sport at all. Fly fishing is very expensive. And a lot of my work is focused on trying to make it more accessible, especially to other native people. But it took me a long time. Like I couldn't afford waders. I couldn't afford a, a fishing rod and reel and line. When you look at everything you need to fly fish, like the costs just start adding up, even having someone who could teach me how to fly fish, like that was really difficult to find as well. There's a lot of work that's being done to making it more accessible everywhere. The past two years, I partnered with my good friend, Jolie, who's the founder of Indigenous Women Hike, and we've been able to host an all-Indigenous women's fly fishing retreat. And it's a three-day event, and it's other Paiute women who have never fished or fly fished before, and we're giving them the tools, we give them all the gear, and we take them to the Pyramid Lake Fisheries and they learn about you know, the history and they learn how to cast and they learn how to tie flies and they're given the tools to be able to fish successfully on their own. And it's just a really beautiful thing to see like all of these native women lined up on the shore fly fishing. And so I think because of the accessibility issues, like that's probably what's taken so long for other tribal members to want to learn how to fly fish. I don't think one is better than the other. I think our people have always been very adaptive. And so if we have access to a spin rod, which is much more affordable, and we can go out and cast our lures and catch fish, like that's a success, you know? We're able to feed our families in that way. And so there's a lot of work being done within the reservation to make fishing more accessible to, to everybody.
0: Okay, it's that time minute with Maria. Maria is joining us from Chogyan Lands in Alaska and is helping us elevate indigenous voices and perspectives on the show.
4: Katrina, thank you for having me. I'm calling in from Chogyan Lands, like you said, and I'm so excited to be here. Okay, what are you hearing from
0: Autumn that you think folks listening should really be keying into about culture or respecting the land and the fish?
4: When I hear Autumn talk about what it's like to stand on the shore of the Kuyui Pa and what it's like to see the history of what the lake used to look like on the side of the mountains. I really just am kind of taken back because of what her tribes have gone through with the wild ride that it is of once having the agai fish. And then it Decimating the population was basically gone for a while and then they reintroduced them it sounds like such a wild ride for their tribe in particular and um, I'm so happy that they got those fish back
0: yeah me too what if anything has really surprised you so far in this conversation about
4: the fish in general or its story I think the most surprising to me is that the population was completely gone and then they were able to have the fish hatchery center reintroduce them to a healthy level to where they're able to, you know, eat them again. And they are a big part of their culture. So that's just such a huge victory for their tribe and their people. Great.
0: So we're hearing Autumn talking about accessibility and fly fishing, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that topic.
4: Yeah, that's super relatable. I deal with that and struggle with that myself and basically any recreational activity, you know, hunting is kind of easier because it's a way of life. And I've always grown up with a rod and reel with a spin rod as well, but I'd like to have accessibility to fly fishing for myself too. I'm a 30 year old indigenous woman, and I still have a lot of challenges in my way. So I really applause her for being able to start collecting this gear library that she's talking about. And I hope that tribes can take note of this and start their own programs for their own people. As being an Indigenous person myself, I can't wait to sign up for her retreat. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Thank you so much, Maria. We'll see you next time. Okay, thank you. Have a good one. Take care.
0: So if we want to get into the mind of one of these trout in the hopes of catching one, what are some of the things we need to know in terms of like how they're feeding or their behavior? In the water column.
2: There's so many factors when it comes to fly fishing. And I'm always learning, right? I don't claim to be like an expert at all. Like I'm constantly learning and I feel really comfortable and confident fishing here. But things can change all the time. And uh, depending on the water temperature and the wind, and uh, there's also fluctuations with the lake levels each year as well. And kind of knowing like where the fish might be cruising or hey, this spot dropped two feet or a foot, you know, like,
3: I'm Mm going to have
2: to switch up my area. And Dan Mosley was the former uh, fisheries director. And so I like to go to him for like macro invertebrate uh, questions. Mm -hmm. But I was asking him about leeches because um, the fish do like to eat leeches, uh, Mm -hmm. depending on like the time of year. And I've always associated leeches with like very poor water quality. And I was asking Dan, like, huh, like, why are we using leeches when we don't like, I I don't think I've ever seen a leech in the lake, you know, but like the fish like to feed on them. And yeah. he was telling me that um, not all leeches are are necessarily bad. I think I should partner up with Roger one of these days and have the biology side and, you know, understanding like, yeah, what are they eating? What what did they like to eat during this time? But those are really important things to to understand. And that's something that I'm working to understand even more.
3: Yeah. It's interesting because I've always wondered that with leeches too. There's such an effective pattern out there, but they're not, you know, a big part of their diet. I think it's just the action that really attracts the fish. So a huge part of long cutthroat diet in Pyramid Lake is 2-HUB. It's kind of the base okay. of the food web. Mm-hmm. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service partners with researchers in the Pyramid Lake Fisheries Program uh, to monitor the 2-HUB population and make sure they're doing okay. Uh, one of the concerns is these fish are getting so huge now, you know, are we overstocking the lake? And so a lot of the monitoring was going to uh, answer that question and make sure we're not, because uh, we don't want to overstrip the food resource. But yeah, two chub are a huge portion of the, the long cutthroat trout diet. As soon as they can switch to eating a fish, as soon as they're big enough, basically to fit something in their mouth, they can eat something up to about the half their body length. Uh, they'll switch over to eating fish, but um, they'll still eat insects throughout their entire life too. There's uh, a number of big cutthroat trout that can be caught on Pyramid Lake that were caught on tiny chironomid patterns, um, you know, mahalo midges, that type of thing. So It's yeah. crazy um, to
0: see such a big fish, yeah, and like picturing it going after a tiny fly. Wow, that's yep. really cool.
2: Roger, thank you so much for bringing up the tui chub. You know, we've been talking a lot about the trout and the kuiwi but the tui chub are like a keystone species here, you know, and without the tui chub population, yeah, the trout wouldn't be able to grow to the sizes that they are. And I think that's also... You know, such a big reason when we were talking about Pilot Peak, the the capacity of that stream and the ponds at Pilot Peak were so a lot smaller, right? Like very small. And as soon as the tribe and US Fish and Wildlife Service um, partnered together, made that decision to reintroduce those Pilot Peak strain back into the lake, like the fish then had access to the two-each hubs and had capacity to grow though i i appreciate you bringing them up because we can't talk about the trout without talking about the 2 each hub
1: so getting into that difference between you know rivers and lakes and fly fishing i think a lot of people when they think about fly fishing they think about fishing the rivers you're using the current to help move your fly and get it in front of fish how does lake fishing particularly lake fishing on a big lake like pyramid differ from river fishing for trout oh my goodness if it's not clear i'm queuing you guys up to talk about the ladders too
2: I thought that was the norm. I thought big fish were the norm everywhere. And then as I got older, I'm like, oh, this is very unique to here. But yeah, ladder fishing, if you Google like Pyramid Lake fishing, you'll see images of of people on ladders and they're like ladder chairs. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of different designs that are coming out. There's ladders that have wheels on them. You can wheel it down to the lake. And what those ladder chairs allow you to do is there's beaches that have like a drop off right at the edge of the beach there and then there's other beaches where it's very shallow for you know a a good size distance and those ladder chairs allow you to take that ladder out to where the shelf is and where that drop off is and allow you to put your flies in where those fish are going to be cruising Mm -hmm. and so the ladder chairs just uh, give you like even more access to those like primary like really good fishing
3: areas. The other thing that's nice about the ladders is they get you out of the water and it's a winter fishing season out there in order Mm. to protect the trout. So, you know, it's often cold and freezing cold. So Mm. um, getting out of that water and getting out of the waves and getting your back cast elevated also helps out a lot.
0: Do you have to be pretty still? Like is the water pretty clear and you got to be like pretty still in your ladder?
3: Well, it's actually really fun. The ladder also lets you see him chase the fly right to you, (laughs) which is kind of a cool experience.
1: Okay. How do you land a 10 15 pound trout on a ladder oh my gosh
2: it's so exciting i'm getting excited just thinking about it when you're indicator fishing like you're just you your eye is on that bobber all day you know and when you see that bobber just like drop below the surface like you set the hook like some of the smaller fish can put up a really good fight but you really have to have patience and you don't want to reel in those fish too quickly a lot of people try to do that I have also done that in the past and my line has broken, but you want to be very patient. You want to give that fish time to come in to you. And surprisingly, like if your ladder chair is like nice and deep in the sand and you have a very firm stance, like it feels no different than like reeling it in if you're on land. But the ladder just allows you to like be higher up and to see that fish and yeah, to to net that fish a little bit easier.
0: Um, and I'm just wondering, handling-wise, how do you best respect that fish? And if folks aren't coming out with you and getting the educational kind of benefits, what other ways can they respect just the, the area when they're fishing?
2: Yeah, so so when I catch a fish, I personally always like to give thanks. I'll speak to it in Paiu actually, and just say, you know, o like, thank you so much. Like, I appreciate you so much. And I do catch and release, but also, like, the fish are our primary food source. And so, you know, I do keep a lot of fish as well. And I'll put it in my freezer. I'll give it away to family members. But when, yeah, when we're reeling in that fish, like we do always want to be very respectful, you know, and want to make sure that we're not keeping that fish out of the water for too long. I think a lot of people tend to do that. And just being really respectful of fish, making sure that you're pinching your barbs. If you are to take it out of the water, like, you know, just a few seconds, put it back in.
3: Yeah, it's become a very important topic within the fishing community, you know, trying to keep the fish as wet as possible. Hold that fish in the water and just barely lift it to the surface to get that photo if you can, rather than sitting there and holding it out of the water and letting its gills dry, you know, for a minute. That can be really, really damaging on the fish and really stressful. You know, the other thing is being considerate of how deep you caught that fish, especially for boat fishermen. If they do pull it from down deep, that swim bladder can inflate as it's pulled up as it goes through a change in pressure. And so, you know, knowing how to release a fish that has been pulled from, you know, say 100 feet deep, there's different ways of doing it. you know, I like to use like a milk crate to lower fish back down to the pressure you caught them at, to the depth you caught them at. That can be really important for that fish's survival. And then, you know, also just being aware of temperature. When those surface temperatures are warm, you know, early in the season, which starts October out of Pyramid Lake or late in the season, you know, as you get towards the end, which is the end of June, You know, you just have to be conscious of how you're releasing fish and how you're handling them and making sure you're reeling them in quickly and and releasing them as quickly as you can.
0: Roger, do you have any stories you'd like to tell us about your fishing experiences on Pyramid
3: Lake? it's been really interesting as a fish biologist because, you know, I work with fish all the time. I get to see these huge cutthroat trout migrating up the river. Um, but anytime I seem to go fishing at Pyramid Lake, I could never catch one over <laughs> 10 pounds. Lots of fish in the five, six, seven pound range, which is huge anywhere else. But at Pyramid Lake, that's, you know, sometimes not even worthy of a photo for certain people. <laughs> so um, finally, after must've been 10 years of fishing out there, I caught one over 10 pounds and I was flow tubing and, you know, seeing all these big fish being caught around me by other flow tubers that were fishing in the same area. And, uh, you know, ah, just getting discouraged you know, and not hooking into anything that was big. And I was actually kind of trolling my fly back to my truck, kicking in my flow tube, you know, kind of mm-hmm. in an act of defeat, but still being hopeful I might hook into something. And then it finally happened. I finally caught one that was over, you know, over 10 pounds, probably 12 pound fish, 32 inches long. That thing took me for a ride on the flow tube. It was oh, really, man. really it fun. Is- and, you know, as I pulled it in, I always look for floy tags, which are these little external tags that we put near the dorsal fin to, you know, monitor fish growth. And we stock them out when they're, you know, small and around, you know, six, seven inches with a tag and then you know as anglers catch those they can call back and give information and we know who tagged the fish uh, where it was stocked and how big it's grown and you know i I saw the tag i saw the numbers i was like is it you you tagged it could be that could be me and sure enough it was me that tagged it (laughs) the
0: fish recognized you that's awesome how much had it grown
3: it was really cool it had grown 25 inches in five years of being out in pyramid lake which is phenomenal growth
1: that's great it was stocked
3: stocked as a like a seven inch fish. That's pretty cool to tag it and then catch it on your float
0: tube. That's awesome.
3: And the amazing thing is, you know, I might be able to catch that fish again. They have a long lifespan out there. They could easily live to 15 years old. Okay. So, you know, that might be the first 20 pounder I ever catch. So that's kind of exciting. That's that's an
0: awesome story. Very cool.
3: We've seen those big fish migrating up the Truckee river, which is super exciting. And, you know, watching them spawn in the river, we do a whole bunch of monitoring and research with that, including red surveys, where we're looking at where these fish are spawning and documenting that, marking those points. And then we're, you know, operating the fish passage facility, getting our hands on these fish and getting data, putting tags in them if they don't already have it. And, you know, also doing research with acoustic transmitters so we can actively track how far up the river system they go and seeing how that differs from rainbow trout.
0: So you've mentioned stocking, you've mentioned tagging, fish passage, and I know you're from the Lahontan National Fish Hatchery Complex, and I'm just wondering, in addition to the hatchery, what is the scope of that complex?
3: The Lahontan National Fish Hatchery Complex is kind of a unique hatchery in that we have a conservation brood stock. So we very carefully monitor the genetics of these fish. We're very careful with how we spawn them and how we produce them, and you know, each fish has a little microchip in it that we're able to compare to a genetic matrix. And there's a lot that goes into it. So very different than your typical fish production hatchery, where we're very conservation focused in in preserving the genetic legacy of this native Lahan cutthroat trout stream.
2: I think in a lot of places, you know, hatcheries kind of get a really bad rep. Obviously, uh, it depends on like where it is, what type of fish are being stocked, what type of fish are being raised in hatcheries. And Without our hatcheries here, without the hatcheries on the reservation, working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, like uh, the tribe wouldn't have been able to have restored the population of the Lahontan cutthroat trout. We wouldn't have been successful without the usage of hatcheries and the tagging program and all of these things that go into it.
1: Yeah, it's important awesome. that people appreciate that nuance. Thanks for that.
3: We do a whole bunch of uh, really cool research with these fish, not only in Pyramid Lake and, and the Truckee River, but we're also starting to reintroduce them into Lake Tahoe, which is exciting. The historic accounts of what the fishery was in Lake Tahoe, it was also amazing. You know, people were catching 100 fish per day back in the 1900s before they were wiped out. We're doing some research trying to understand, you know, how we can get these fish back in the system. Lake Tahoe is important. In terms of being climate change resilient habitat, it's a high elevation system with lots of different tributaries and, of course, a very deep lake. So nice and cold. Stocking uh, 100,000 cutthroat trout last year. Um, we're also actively uh, following fish with um, acoustic transmitters to kind of understand oh. how they behave post-stocking and you know see what temperature they're going to see how they're moving around the lake and and we're learning a lot. So uh, a lot of exciting developments coming and I can't wait till we link the whole population back together again between Lake Tahoe, the Truckee River, and Pyramid Lake.
0: Awesome. Cool, cool. That'd
3: be
4: great.
0: Any final call to actions from either of you in terms of how folks listening can help with conservation of this
2: fish? We have to be really careful about all of the excess nutrients, that are flowing downstream. We're really aware of the amount of people and upstream users because we do have these really important fish species, the Keewee and the Lover Trout that we are working to protect. And so because of that, us being a terminal lake, you know, there is a accumulation, bioaccumulation of these different nutrients within the lake. And so that's something that we're really, you know, always keeping an eye on with our water quality, water quantity.
3: Anglers can help us out a ton by calling in any tagged fish they catch. That data is so important to us. Um, It really is citizen science. And, you know, we are stocking tagged fish um, in Lake Tahoe and also Pyramid Lake. So if an angler's out there and they catch one, look for that hotline number, record where you caught it, how large the fish was, and we'll get back to you letting you know where it was stocked and how long it's been in the lake and how much it's grown. That data is so important and so exciting for us to get that data in. So anglers are a huge help.
2: Maybe Roger tagged
3: it. Yeah, maybe I tagged Just, it.
2: I think that's great. I really encourage folks to to do their research. If they're going to be fishing or visiting an area, understand the history of that area, the people whose homelands you're on when you're out fishing, the recovery efforts that have been done to you know, ensure the survival of those fisheries. I can guarantee you if you do that extra research beforehand, like you are going to just develop an even deeper appreciation for those fish. You found the two people who could talk about lahan cutthroat trout all day long.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Thank you two so much. This was great talking with you. You have a ton of knowledge. It's super cool.
3: Yeah, I, I could definitely talk for another couple hours. Uh, I don't think we got to half of my questions. I know now. I have, I a, have, a, I have a list of we'll notes here. We'll have to have you all that, back
1: next year. Yeah,
3: I have a list of notes here. I didn't even touch. But yeah,
0: okay. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the agi, which is the Lahattan cutthroat trout. I say that right, Autumn? A guy. A guy. A guy. A guy. Okay. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> okay. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the guy. The Lahattan Cutthroat Trout. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebig, and my co host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.
3: So are you guys hearing my cat? I don't know. Oh, I heard your cat. That. I
0: think it's okay. It was kind of funny. <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs> being very I nice. I want to be
0: on the podcast. It was just it, very faint. I think it's okay. Podcat. Podcast. Pod,
3: it is a podcat.
0: You're <laughs> going